Hello everyone, I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Fit for a Queen. We have Kara Bazzi on from Opal Food and Body Wisdom. Thanks so much for um, being on today, Kara. Yeah, thanks for having me. Double Kara's in the house. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to share with you a little bit about Kara. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist who's been focusing her work on the treatment of eating disorders since 2002. Um, She graduated with honors from University of Washington with a degree in psychology and her master's degree in marriage and family therapy from Seattle Pacific University. She and Julie Church founded the Eating Disorder Program at the Seattle Pacific University's Counseling Center, a multidisciplinary program that offered comprehensive care for the undergraduate student population. From 2004 to 2011, Kara was in private practice, offering individual, family, couple, and group outpatient therapy. She's an approved supervisor through the state of Washington and an eating disorder specialist. One of Kara's passions and interests is working with athletes. As a former University of Washington cross-country and track athlete, she continues to compete in sports, both as a passion and also to stay connected with the athletic mindset and lifestyle. She's developed the exercise and sport program at Opal to ensure that clients' relationship to sport and exercise is an integral part of their treatment. Thanks so much for being on, Kara. Yeah. Yes. And um, we'd like to first start with getting a little bit more information. Can you share your journey of becoming a therapist and specifically working with clients struggling with eating disorder and exercise issues? Yeah, I, you know, my path to the mental health field actually really integrates with my recovery process. Um, I went to the University of Washington and was kind of your quintessential performer type person. So I was, you know, running cross country and track at the division one level and I was doing pre-med, a pre-med track um, on my way to become a doctor. Hmm. And um, the summer bef- between my junior and senior year, I went on a mission trip to Jerusalem um, and worked in a children's rehabilitation center. Hmm. And the reason wow. I did this was was actually mainly motivated as a resume builder for med school. Um, and what I discovered by by doing that experience is I I came more in contact with actually what I wanted versus sort of my achiever part. Mm -hmm. And by being in that hospital, I realized I was so much more interested in the relationship between the mother and the, the mothers and the kids in this hospital Mm -hmm. than I really was about what was going on physically with the kids. And it was one of those moments of, wow, like I can really turn towards something I actually want um, to focus on versus something I'm good at or I can achieve or prestige. So that was really a turning point where I decided to stop. I had like a couple classes left in my pre-med track um, and really pursue psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that was a really big moment for me to, to choose kind of my values over performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I graduated with a psychology degree and then before I went to grad school for um, marriage and family therapy, I spent a year in um, some work with uh, ministry with athletes through a place or through a organization called Athletes in Action. So I got to work with um, athletes of in all the different teams. And it was a really neat opportunity to get an insider view of each sport um, or the sports I got to work with. And also just made me more hungry to develop more skills of how to be helpful with um, kind of what was going on with the athletes from a mental health perspective. And so I went into my grad program and, you know, interestingly, I, I had, um, internship, my internship opportunities, I wanted to work in the university setting and I didn't get that internship. And so I was really disappointed because I thought the university setting would be the way that I could work with people that were struggling with eating disorders. And instead I got an internship at a youth and family agency. So I was working a lot with kids and my supervisor was very much, um, encouraging me and affirming me in, in my work with young kids. And, and so again, the achiever in me <laughs> might've said, well, this is something I'm good at, but I knew that I really, my desire was to work with people with eating disorders, given um, my own personal um, experience with dealing with an eating disorder in mm-hmm. college. And so, mm-hmm. um, so when I, um, when it came to the time when I graduated, I took a major risk and opened my private practice and really did focus on um, treating eating disorders, marketing myself that way, and then working uh, almost primarily with athletes, um, given kind of my own my own journey. Mm-hmm. What a great journey of just kind of listening to that gut instinct and leading with your heart. And it seems like it's paid off for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I never look back. I think, you know, that was in 2004 when I opened my practice. And um, I mean, I just, I, yeah, I, it's, I absolutely love working with this population. And I think the meaning, the meaningfulness of, of working with folks who um, are, you know, who are struggling with something that I personally have walked that path. And so um, it's, it never gets old. It never gets boring. <laughs> I think it's just fascinating <laughs> and interesting work. And I, I, I just really, um, just love, you know, love the clients that come through our doors. So perfect. So you've had quite a bit of different experience. Can you tell us some of the messages that you see our current day athletes receiving in their sport world and culture, and then maybe some of the ones that, you know, you maybe fell victim to or heard amongst your teammates? Yeah. So, you know, I think messages, there's a lot of messages that athletes can receive. I think about their bodies, about food, um, perfectionism, emotion. So just to kind of lay some of those out, I think when it comes to the body, um, I can start with my experience being in a weight demand sport, such as distance running. There are, you know, I think there's a variety of, of different team cultures. So I don't think all teams are the same, but um, there is more messages around weight and performance. And uh, I think we're still battling with um, some beliefs around thinner is better, or there's a, there's a particular race weight that is going to be ideal for performance. And those messages can be explicit from teammates or coaches. They also can be 
I, I, I love talking about the power of silence as well of mm-hmm. when those messages aren't explicit and yet an athlete can connect the dots based on observation. Yeah. Um, so like they might be seeing, you know, the, the thinner athletes racing well. And if, if coach or if, if um, that's not being explicitly addressed on the team, you know, an athlete like myself, um, I would say that was my experience is there wasn't explicit messages, but I was observing what other athletes were doing and um, kind of following suit. So kind of watching my other teammates um, be pretty restrictive in their eating and, and, and just sort of falling in line with, with what mm-hmm. other people were doing and then seeing um, kind of seeing performance result and connecting a lot of dots um, pretty simplistically because I didn't have, um, I didn't have education or, ways to make it more complicated. And I wasn't working with any actually real um, valid scientific information um, to, so I, yeah, to me, for me, that really did a lot of damage in my own um, athletic career in the university. If they run better than you do, then well, I might as well eat what they eat. And yeah, those messages are really strong, but really um, unsaid. Unsaid, yeah, I like that. Important point. And it can be so normative, you know, I, and I share when I talk about my story, I don't, I never even said I had an eating disorder or acknowledge that as, as a thing until after I graduated, because um, I convinced myself that it was normal because it was normative on my sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't anybody challenging what I was doing or what other teammates were doing. And so I just thought this was something that a competitive athlete does. Yeah. And um, it took, it took a long time to actually see how, um, and healthy and uh, how really sick I was. Um, so I think that that's something that might be a little bit more difficult in the sport world um, is just how things can be hidden behind mm-hmm. sort of normative behaviors within a team culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, you know, messages about food can be, again, explicit or not explicit, but um, again, the idea that there's a way to eat, particularly for peak performance. Um, I think these mess- there's messages potentially around that we have to be careful around perfectionism, especially for athletes that are over-controlled and their temperament that are already leaning towards a more perfectionistic mindset. And, um, and so, you know, are, are they in a sport environment that perpetuates that sort of pressure and it's almost too much of a good thing. There's a, there's a lot about, um, you know, we talk at Opal about perfectionism versus excellence. So Mm -hmm. this idea that, yeah, we can, we can give a shit. We can really desire to perform well and try hard. Um, but what really, when it comes down to it, what are we going to do with the outcome and Mm -hmm. in a more perfectionistic mindset, there's, um, so much more focus on the outcome than the process. And, and are we, kind of is the sport world that we're in promoting kind of a more outcome driven perfectionistic viewpoint about sport performance or are we being fostered um, in an environment that that uh, really highlights the process and um, kind of the effort and uh, that we have maybe you know not zero percent control but not a hundred percent control of our uh, of our outcomes um, and then that final one I was saying is emotion. I think um, that's another place, another area that um, can become problematic is 
you know, what, what is our sport environments encouraging us or not encouraging us in terms of our emotional expression? Are we having to cut off from parts of ourselves to show mm-hmm. up in sport in a way that can be problematic later, mm-hmm. um, especially for an over-controlled athlete around like a more emotionally inhibited um, presentation. And that can lead to a lot of loneliness and just again, misery, mm-hmm. <laughs> which doesn't help sport performance in the end. Mm-hmm. So those are the ones that kind of, that I first come, first come to mind. Mm-hmm. Those are really good points. Yeah. For sure. Excellent. Um, another topic that the sport world doesn't talk very much about is transitioning out of sport. So can you share mm-hmm. a little with us your transition out of sport in college and how you have over time developed a healthy relationship with running after recovery? Yeah. So, you know, I think I would identify again in hindsight that by the end of college, I had a very compulsive relationship with running. Um, it's pretty miserable. And, you know, I think for me, it helped to have graduated because I think there was a lot of pressure being a scholarship athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, it was re- it's, it was just I mean, I think it's just hard um, to to alter relationship with sport when you're in that kind of pressure situation. But mm-hmm. once I once that pressure was off, um, you know, I think there was something in me. I, I knew I loved sport. I, lo- I was a basketball player in high school. I, be, you know, I, I really focused on running in college and I, I mean, I've always loved, I've always loved sports and loved participating in it. And so I think there was enough um, of knowing that, that I wasn't satisfied with kind of running has just become miserable and I don't want to do it anymore. Um, and so, and I was also starting my recovery process and, and being in treatment and therapy and, and working um, more on myself. And so I think because I was working more on myself and working, more, uh, having a stronger, stronger identity outside of sport, a stronger self-worth, I was more willing to kind of really experiment with my relationship with running and, um, which was, which was exciting because I could be more curious. And so mm-hmm. a big question I, I asked myself was, was I only fast in college because I was anorexic? And, and so a, a major question was this one around weight and performance. So experimenting there was what could I actually do performance wise by being nourished and by weighing, you know, 15 pounds more than I was at my lowest point. And, and that was a, a big, um, I, I was okay with the answer of maybe I was only fast because I was anorexic. So I really pursued that and got data points and I rate, I was training again and racing again um, and actually saw data points that suggest that I actually could run as like in some ways run as, as strong um, with being nourished and having my body be bigger. And I think that just brought more questions of gosh, how many people mm-hmm. are in my boat mm-hmm. that they are making themselves miserable to be a lower weight and they could have more freedom with food and be more nourished and actually race well, like it, yeah. that we don't have to um, give that part up potentially. And so, you know, that was really exciting work that I did. Um, I also feel like um, another big thing was what's running outside of competition for me. I'm a very competitive person. I love, (laughs) I love competition, but what else? And so I, that was fun experimentation. Like what would it mean to engage like spirituality through the sport connection to other people? Like I remember um, running with friends who I really love and yet they were slower than me and some of the un, 
the discomfort at, at first of like, oh, I'm going to slow down and run their pace. <laughs> like, this is kind of hard. But then coming to like, be like, who cares? You know, I love it. It's This is another form of it for me is connecting to people or connecting to my faith mm-hmm. or or really pushing my my booty and get, you know, having good, you know, like really working towards um, a race uh, and training. And so it, it, I think I really expanded my relationship to running. Um, and I just, I mean, again, I, I've fallen in love with it again, you know, at that time and, and just, there's so much freedom. There's so much more expansiveness. It's, I'm not devastated by um, performance anymore. Um, and so it's, it's exciting. And I think that's part of the message that I like hope I want to offer um, for athletes as well. And athletes that have gone down the path of really getting disordered is that this is possible. You know, it, it's, it doesn't mean you have to leave your sport forever and you're never going to get the joy back. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is possible. And I like how you experimented on yourself with getting some data points. I know there's only been like really one good case study where um, a professional runner over in Europe, of course, she had a whole team around her where they were able to keep her in energy balance for so many years. And she's hardly had any injuries and fractures Mm -hmm. and kept her period. Now, this is one person. But the more that we have these stories, Mm -hmm. I think these athletes will believe like, oh, I don't have to toe the line of being so unhealthy and putting myself at risk. I can have both. Yeah, exactly. I know I, I'm with you. I want more stories out there and stories of, of athletes who, you know, are, are role models um, too, from a performance side. Cause I, I think people, yeah, I mean, they, they have a lot of power. Um, I mean, I think of Allie Kiefer too, who got mm-hmm. a lot of press around yeah, her journey, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And I love the stance that you take in terms of, okay, I'm going to be curious about what my body can do at yeah. this point. Um, just kind of sharing that with with clients of looking at it from, let's just be curious with this, totally. with this experience. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, and, you know, I mean, we all know that if someone tells us something, like, it could be another way. This is possible. That's, it's not as compelling as actually having a felt experience with something. Mm-hmm. You, you might say, okay, great, you know, but to actually have it in your own body and your own experience of something. I mean, that's the goal to get mm-hmm. right. Like that's, that actually is what creates change. Yeah. So can you tell us more about how you came about with the name Opal and this Opal food and body wisdom and how you're integrating movement and exercise into treatment? Yeah. So Opal is, um, we're based in Seattle or higher level of care eating disorder treatment center. Um, we opened, gosh, it's going to be almost seven years ago. Wow. And Congratulations. I know. Yeah. Thank you. I know. It's exciting. Um, you know, the name's funny. Like it was, it was very challenging to come up with a name um, because we cared so much. It was like our baby, you know, to, to open this place. And, and it actually came from a baby name list. Mm-hmm. Um, but we liked, we actually, it's not an acronym. It's more of a, the gem, truly the gem opal. And we liked all the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um about how, you know, it's a, it's kind of an ugly, craggly rock with something beautiful inside. Um, oh. The metaphor of like, you have to have light to refract all the colors. Um, so there's just a lot of play on the, on the metaphor um, that felt congruent with what, um, with, with treatment. And, um, you know, the, the, the exercise and sport part of it was, was truly my vision around, you know, starting with my own experimentation I did way back when, um, 
And, you know, that was something I built off in my private practice working with clients was was really doing exercise and sport with clients um, experientially. And and so we built off that when we opened Opal and have um, just really integrated that type of programming within the treatment to address and support people in their process around um, or the relationship to movement and sport. And I just I mean, I can't say enough about how (laughs) helpful it is to bring that into eating disorder treatment. I think Mm -hmm. historically people haven't. They've been Mm -hmm. afraid. They've Mm -hmm. said no exercise and treatment. Um, But that never made logical sense to me because how are they going (laughs) to create change if there's no support? Um, I mean, it just... Go home and do it. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Exactly. (laughs) They're going to exercise anyway. So I just you know, meeting clients where they're at. um, I think that, you know, it really, I really wanted to be um, a place that athletes could feel at home and that their identity as an athlete was honored and they could see it. Um, I also think, you know, one piece that I feel proud about is knowing the sport world. um, If we're not, if we're saying just stop participating in sport, we're creating more of a chasm between the treatment world and the sport world Mm -hmm. where we're not building a bridge of trust. And I think that's really important, especially coming from the college athletic um, scene, you know, an athletic department, they're not going to want to refer their athletes to treatment. If we're just saying this thing is, you know, problematic, stop doing it. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's really important for me to build trust to, you know, build bridges and trust with coaches and the sport world. That's probably one of the areas I feel most excited about Mm -hmm. in my current work. Um, because, you know, we want to be supportive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and helping both athletes and, um, yeah, just that, that whole side of, um, the, the world around, you know, the, the sport communities, I think you're exactly right. I think you have to have both arms of that if you're going to work with athletes. You have to understand the eating disorder, but you also have to understand the sport world. And for a college athlete, they're not professional, but that scholarship money feels like their job. Mm -hmm. So you're going to scare them if you tell them like, oh, we're going to pull you out of sport, which we want them to get healthy. But we've got to find that way that they can feel protected um, and still maintain their spot within their, their team. Exactly. And it's such exactly. a good point. If we're scared of touching it, the coach is going to be scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of touching no, it. And then, we're not scared and be yeah. like, here, go yeah, at yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, such a good point. And we've seen, I mean, it's been incredible what we've seen people, the changes they've gone through on that kind of compulsive part of their relationship um, within even higher level of care. So even in a PHP IOP stint, I've seen incredible change, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and in literature, they often say the relationship to like body image is one of the last to change and right. even relationship to exercise. And I don't have research to back this up, but I would not be surprised if the exercise part is in there because eating, because eating disorder treatment centers haven't addressed mm-hmm. it very well. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I mean, with my own eyes, you know, quali- or yeah, qualitatively, I'm just seeing um, some remarkable change for people that have been very obsessive and perfectionistic and mm-hmm. rigid, become more flexible. It's mm-hmm. really cool. I bet that's so good to see um, with your so work cool. you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's such great information about Opal and then your journey, too. Thank you so much for sharing um, yeah. about your journey. And at the end of each interview, we ask the interviews how they live out 
the fit philosophy. So how are you trying mm-hmm. to balance performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self in all of your Yeah, busy I love work? it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Always the, trying to get that balance. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I just think I was thinking about what kind of is relevant now, right now. Um, I mean, there's so many things I've always, you know, I, I think time is one that's always been tough for me. I've, I'm involved in lots of things that I care a lot about mm-hmm. that are very value driven. Um, and you know, the balance is not always there. I, I, so the way I try to look at it is a little bit more perspective, as long as I'm looking at it from kind of forest versus trees, like there's going to be some things that take a back burner in different seasons in my life. Um, but if I can take kind of the overall picture of, um, am I attending to these parts of myself, um, kind of in the big picture that I think that's what matters to me. Um, and you know, one concept I'm working with is just through my recovery, I built a really trusting relationship with myself, with food, um, with, with movement, with exercise and a place that I have, um, more struggle with trusting is with time. And, and I'm trying to really live with a more abundant mentality versus like, you know, scarcity mentality of, um, so I think that's where I'm working on the balance thing. And I want to approach it. That's the language I use is like with more of an abundance, like it will all happen. It will all get done. Mm -hmm. Um, I will be able, you know, it might not be exactly, um, everything that I want it to be and that's okay. (laughs) It's a lot of letting go. Um, you know, I think there's still, I always, you know, I, I lean towards a more perfectionistic, uh, mindset. And so I, I still have tendrils of that, that I, you know, I'm, I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's that. how, that's what I thought of with that question. Mm-hmm. Being the optimist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, it's so fun having double cares here. Lots of wisdom in this uh, room today. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Well, Kara, thanks so much for being on and again, sharing your journey and um, a little bit about Opal. So um, thank you for being on and have a great day. Thanks for having me. Uh Thanks, Kara. Bye, Queens. Bye, Queens. Thank you to our sponsor today, Sentimano Counseling. Sentimano Counseling is the premier perinatal mental health practice in Kansas City, treating mood disorders during pregnancy and postpartum, perinatal loss, infertility, eating, and exercise disorders. Go to Sentimano.com for further information about the practice and services. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fit for queen and Hashtag fit for a queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.